everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Off the Record uh, Show. I'm Aram Makumov, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing uh, well-known CEOs and VCs about their entrepreneurial journeys, how they built their businesses, raised money, hired pop and rock stars along the way, and didn't quit, most importantly. Uh, so as a founder, you'll hear practical insights into their world, the psychology and their thinking, so you can apply it into your own company and get better at what you do. The guest I have today on the show is Scott Case. Uh, Scott is a technologist, inventor, and entrepreneur well-known as the founding CTO of Priceline.com. Currently, Scott is the co-founder and CEO of Upside, uh, where he is reinventing business travel for millions of people each, each year. Scott is also the host of his own show called Founders Focus, a community of entrepreneurs navigating the challenges of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Scott, uh, awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much for giving us some time today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool. Um, let me jump into that. The first, the first uh, kind of topic I wanted to go through with you was uh, um, on the show so far, we've interviewed about 20 plus founders and investors. But when I look at the, you know, the history or sorry, the experience of a lot of the people that we've had on our show, yours, yours comes out kind of at the top um, with uh, what you've done. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, about your journey of raising capital as a founder and what kind of unique insights you've learned along the way? Well, so first off, let's start with the notion of raising capital at all. So as an entrepreneur, you have to make a couple of choices and you don't have to lock in on them too early, but at some point along most people's journey, you're going to decide how you're going to finance whatever it is that you've cooked up. And hopefully at that time you're making that decision, you've fallen in love with the problem that you're working to solve and you've recruited a few other people that want to solve that problem. And ideally you've done the customer validation work that goes along with it to make sure that you're working on something somebody else actually gives a shit about and ideally even wants to pay you for. Um, and so at that point, you have to make a decision about for your market and your customers, uh, what's the best way to finance it. And I'll, I'll just caution that I think there's a lot of hype and a lot of enthusiasm for being a venture backed company as if somehow being venture backed is like the blessing of success or something. It isn't. It is useful to have resources. Venture investors are very smart. They have a good view of the market, but you're making a trade-off when you take on uh, an investor and you're gaining some things and you're also you know, losing or you, you're creating some potential liabilities or challenges for yourself. So I'll start with the position of as an entrepreneur and as a founder, if you're starting a, your goal is a high growth company, your goal is to get to scale. When you decide to make that make that leap to raise capital, you are making a big decision that's going to have a long-term impact on your business. And so I'll focus on sort of three pieces of the puzzle, and then I'll let you follow up with questions you think might your audience might find interesting. So the first piece of it is, is when you're, when you're raising capital and you're going, you've made the choice to be in the venture game, know that it's a two-way exchange. Right. You are basically partnering with another person slash firm that is going to be with your company longer than almost every employee you have, maybe even longer than your co-founder, because a lot of co-founders 
kind of have breakups along the way. And so as if you're the CEO, just know that you're going to have somebody that's going to be at your table, like for a long time, you know, typical startups that make it five, 10 years, right? So it's not just about who, you know, who you pitching them. It's also about making sure that you're going to want them at your table. It's, it's as close to having somebody like marry into your family as you get in a business world, because they're going to be there with you and you're going to interact with them some, sometimes very frequently. Sometimes it might be once a month or once a quarter in a board meeting, but guess what? They're going to be there and they have a, they have a role to play. So number one, as you're thinking about it there, I like to think of them as capital partners. They're partners in your business to your success. They happen to bring capital to the table. And there's lots of flavors of them. If we have time, we can unpack them. But that's the first thing. This is a two-way street, right? You've got to make sure that you're in a position where you're going to bring this person in and they have to obviously want to bring you into their portfolio, right? So that's number one. Number two is once you are on this train of raising capital, you are likely to be on this train of raising capital for the full duration of your company until you exit the business. Because once you start to bring the fuel in, that capital has a set of expectations to it. And I'll, I'll come to that a little later. But the, the expectations of that capital, you need to be delivering on. And oftentimes, it leads to more capital. So... The, the trick is, the second thing is, if you choose to go down this route, not only are you bringing a partner into your world, but you are going to be raising capital for a while. And the, this isn't perfect, and I'm sure you'll have an audience of investors that say that's not always true, or you'll have founders that have different experiences. But on average, it's pretty close in my experience. So when you start down this, assume that each round of capital that you raise, if you're a high growth startup, you're likely to give up 20% of your company along the journey. Right. So if you raise a seed round of capital and you're going to raise a million dollars and the pre-money valuation of your company is $4 million post money, you have a $5 million company on paper. Why is that? They own a million dollars. They own 20% of your business. Well, now fast forward in time. Now you've got to raise the next round of capital. Well, guess what? If you think you're going to raise you need to raise $2 million the next time, your, your valuation needs to grow by a certain amount in order for you to stay within that 20%. Otherwise, you have to give up more of the company. So you're always going to be on this train. And so you have to be accepting that you're kind of always raising money. So that's number two. And the third thing is you're never only raising one round of capital. You're always raising two. You're raising the round you're starting with and you're raising the, the next round. And the reason that's important is because the amount of capital you raise and the expectations you set for it are really the setup for the next round of capital. And so the, the thing that I find a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong is they think about, take my million dollar example, I'm going to raise a million dollars and that's going to allow me to hire a tech team, or that's going to allow me to hire a marketing thing, or that's all, I mean, whatever it is. Mm -mm. No, that's not the game. The key is when you're, for your investors is you're saying, look, I am going to prove or disprove two or three things about our product and our business with this capital. And by proving those two or three things, that is going to set me up to tell a story to be able to raise the next round of capital. Maybe from you, if you continue to play, if you're that kind of an investor, or maybe from the next tier of investment firm that I'm going to need to bring in to raise the next round of capital. So 
it's about fast forwarding to that time and saying, okay, 12, 18 months from now, what am I going to have proven about our business by that time? And that cycle repeats itself throughout the entire journey. I don't care where you are in it. You can look at every company that's gone up that curve and that's what they're proving along the way. And so when I think about raising capital, and I've had these experiences, some have failed and some have been successful. Sometimes you make it up the curve and then you can't prove the thing you need to prove and you have to retreat and do something different. You're partnering with a capital partner, make sure they're in the game with you. You're on this train. So you assume you're raising capital sort of forever. And then the third piece is you're never just raising one round, you're raising two because the round you're in is about proving something that's gonna let you raise the next round of capital, whatever that is. So. That's been my experience. I've been a part of raising capital. I've been a part of taking company public. I have raised capital and had it fail. I've had raised capital and I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, but they all follow that same kind of pattern. Okay, lots, lots to unpack there. So I'll try to remember all my questions I want to ask. But first question I actually have is what you just said just now was, in that situation that you raised capital and failed, what did you do? Did you give back the remaining money that you had back to the investors? Did you end up winding down the company instead of trying to figure out how to reinvent it or to make it better? So my co-founder and I, uh, we started a company called Main Street Genome. Our premise of the business was that lots of small businesses, Main Street businesses, think nail salons, restaurants, dental offices, um, they generate a lot of data by their existence, but they, um, but they don't get better as a business with that data. Right? They, they take credit card swipes, they enter stuff into a, a point of sale terminal, they, um, they buy supplies from, uh, from a supplier, and all that generates a data exhaust, but their business didn't improve. So we pitched some seed stage investors in on that premise and said, look, we believe there's a product opportunity here, we're going to prove three things. Number one, that we can get access to this data from small business owners, from their point of sale systems, from their checking accounts, wherever they have data, we're going to suck it in. So that was the first thing I had to prove. Second thing was that there'd be valuable information in that data that we could help them be more profitable or grow their business, whatever it was for that business type that mattered. And then the third thing was we'd be able to build a product that would be able to monetize those insights. Took us about six months to figure out the first one. Took us another three or four months to do the second one. So get the data analyze the data. And then we spent the subsequent 12 to 18 months building a series of products for small business owners that could monetize the insights we were delivering to them. That's the part that didn't work. We built great technology for that middle part, actually for the first part and the middle part. And we could never get small business owners to make the turn. And what we realized was that it was such a, there was a, such a fundamental behavioral persona type for these types of businesses that we came to the conclusion that we, as co-founders, we were not going to be the ones to figure out how to monetize these insights. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has since then. We started, we, we wound the company down about six years ago. Um, maybe somebody out there, if you're listening to this podcast and you've cracked the code, I'd love to hear about it because we were baffled by it. And it was basically that the behavior of the, of the owners was one that they were very reactionary, reacting to things in their business. That's how they ran the business. And they started that way and they just had these habits. And so when you come in and you'd say things like, you haven't adjusted your menu pricing, take a coffee shop, in five years since you started the company. We've done the analysis, the price of a, a regular cup of coffee has risen by about 60 cents in your local area. 
you're, if you just raised the price of a cup of coffee by 25 cents, you could make $15,000 more a year. You know, and these are businesses that might be a $500,000 a year revenue business. So that's a lot of money, right? And that's money that goes straight in your pocket. Six months it took them to make the change, right? Which was literally a chalkboard, erase the chalkboard, put a new price in because they had old school like type in point of sale terminal. So literally somebody would order you, you want a bagel and a cup of coffee? They'd look up at the cup of coffee and they type it in because, you know, these places are staffed by teenagers, right? So they made the change, they made the money, but we couldn't figure out how to create a product that would help them do those things. And so we basically looked at each other and said, you know what, this isn't going to work. And, um, and so we went back to our investors um, and we were, we were investors. We had hard money in as well as our equity. And then we had an outside investor and we said, look, let, we're laying this out for you. We could raise more capital and keep after it. That's the crazy part. We had made, we'd proven enough, especially about the technology that, we could have kept going, but we said, we can't crack this code. We've tried everything. And so we and the investors agreed to just do right by our employees, make sure that we had no liabilities in the business. And we wound it down. There was basically no money left. We sold the technology off for pennies on the dollar and we moved on. It was an unbelievably difficult decision to make because we didn't want to feel like we had we had failed, but we, what we had done is we actually learned an enormous amount and we packaged the whole thing up and we gave it to the investors and said, look, if you or anybody else you know ever gets down into this path where you're hearing a pitch about this, share this with them. Because <laughs> we, we've, we've got very expensive tuition here. Let's make sure that we use it. And, um, and so that's, the, that's sort of the story of the business. And you know it's painful and there's all kinds of pieces. But as far as the capital went, that was how we played that out. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, going to something you mentioned earlier um, <clears throat> about the decision of why to raise money. Um, so we've spoken to a lot of people now where some uh, decided to go down totally the bootstrap route, keep it organic, validate it out as much as they can get to say 20, 000, 20 to 30,000 MRR. That's what seems to start being like the repetitive sweet spot in terms of a decision at that point in terms of, okay, do I get the capital that I want uh, at that point in time because um, I figured it out or I have some sort of product market fit? Or do I keep going this more bootstrapped? From your perspective, what is some of the rationale or reasons that a founder or co-founder should really decide on the reason to go and raise money? Like, why do it instead of just keeping it organic and bootstrapped? Man, there are as many as there are many reasons as there are founders. Um, so let me I'll try to unpack some of the, or at least list out some of them. So. One is that uh, in order for you to be able to scale the business sort of fast enough um, and fast is a relative thing is you need capital to be able to fuel that growth. So it's a, let's call it a marketing issue. You know, you, you know what your economics are, you need to be able to, um, to scale the business quickly. And so why might you need to scale the business quickly? Well, you, um, you may be in a competitive environment where at some point, you're you're going to be behind on the execution. So you may be first in the market with something, but somebody else better capitalized than you may come along and blow right by you. So there's there's a risk in being finding yourself first, but then ending up fifth. And at that point, there may not be enough of a market left for you. There's all kinds of competitive dynamics for it. It's not a reason to do it or not do it, but that's one of the reasons people people make around it. Another is that if you believe that you have 
a problem that is a rich problem. And right now you can only solve a small piece of it, but if you had more resources, you could solve a bigger piece of it and be able to create more economic value for both the business, maybe deliver better value to the customer, then you need the capacity to build the stuff. Because if you do it organically, you, you know, you're know you only gonna be able to create one new thing every six months, right? Whereas if you have two or three times the capacity that you have now, you might be able to shrink that time and own a bigger piece of the share of wallet of the customer, right? So one's a scaling piece and one's a, um, you know, a, the breadth of the solution for you. Another is why did you start the company in the first place? It is very difficult to have a wealth creation event within that five or 10 year window or in an organic growth model. So if your intention was to say, look, I'm starting this to create an asset that I can monetize from a wealth creation event and go from a net worth of X to 10 X, then a venture-backed company is a way to do that because it allows you to get to that scale and get you to a, a wealth creation event down the line. You still have to build a great company. There's no short circuits to that. And you still have to put the time and energy in. But there are very few companies, most lifestyle businesses, if they get to an exit at some point, they're, they're on the timescales of decades, not years, right? And so you might be at that business for 20 or 30 years. Now, for some people, they love that. That's exactly what they want to do as entrepreneurs. So be in tune with what you want, right? I happen to like the idea of spending three to six or seven years really pushing on something and solving a really big scaled up problem where I can impact as many people as possible. Well, that's the first type, that scaling type. If you want to have the biggest impact you can, you're going to have to figure out how you scale it. Very hard to scale businesses without capital. Right? You just need to put fuel in them if you want to have the biggest impact. But if your impact scope, and for me, it's either you know national or global, right? I'm, I'm thinking hundreds of millions, if not billions of people is what gets me excited. But if what gets you excited is I want to help a, you know, a, a smaller community, whether that community is a geographic one or it's a, an industry segment of it, and then if that's what gets you jazzed, you can probably grow it organically. So those are just some of the dimensions that get complicated about whether it makes sense for you to raise capital or not, depending on what your goals are and, and being clear. And this is the part that I'll land on. I didn't talk much about it earlier, but be super aligned with your co-founder or co-founders if you have them. You have to be on the same page. I'm mentoring a, a company now, and I'm mentoring one of the co-founders who's not the who's the technical co-founder, not the CEO. And one of the first meetings I had with him, they're clearly not on the same page. They've they've gotten on the same page, but you know, one really was happy to build a lifestyle business that threw off some cash, and the other's like, no, 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 I want to go win this whole. I want to win the game. If you're misaligned there, oof, that is just going to show up everywhere. It's going to show up in the way you pitch. It's going to show. So make sure that you are on the same page on this front because you both have to be engaged. And it's one of the places where I see a lot of co-founders fall apart because they're not aligned around some of these fundamental things. Awesome, no, that's good, great insights. When it comes to um, actually making that decision uh, as a founder, co-founder, to go and raise the money, um, and obviously it's in different stages when you go, you know, family and friends or angels and then seed and then, you know, series A and higher, there's obviously different expectations with each one, but 
Um, I have a follow-up question to that, which I'll try to remember. But my first question is, when you go and you go to that investor or you go to that you know, VC firm to get that capital, what are some of the things that you've seen along the way that you would want to point out as like things to consider when you're having those conversations? Um, like, you know, red flags that come across uh, in, in certain situations around um, the investment process. I don't know, the amount of board seats or the voting control or, or whatever it is. Any, any things in your journey that struck out to you as like, well, that's really weird. <laughs> or like, you know, I should tell somebody to be considerate and mindful of this when they do this themselves. Yeah, there are there are there are books that have been written that are that are uh, you know better than that. I think one of them is by Brad Feld. I think it's called um, "Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Your and Your Venture Capitalist." So that that deal with a lot of those nuances. So I'm not an expert in those things, but what I can tell you about it is in the process. Usually the problem comes in not being able to get to get the capital at all, not be able to get the meeting, et cetera. Um, so quickly on that, if you choose that if you choose to build the business and you're going to raise capital, then start socializing the problem that you're solving and who you are to the people you think you're going to raise capital from very early in the process. You're not wasting anybody's time. They actually want to know because their job is to put money to work. And so the more that they are aware of entrepreneurs that are working on certain things along the way, it'll make it a lot easier for you to go, hey, I now have gotten to X dollars in MRR or number of users or whatever it is. I'd like to come talk to you now about our plans to raise capital. So the entry point matters and how you get there, it really matters. Once you're there... There are standard things, and and it's worth having a good lawyer. Um, you know, Cooley is a really is a really um, uh, startup friendly law firm. Um, they'll do a lot of stuff just talking to you as you're very early in the process without necessarily having you as a client just yet. But obviously, if you're going to close a deal, have somebody at the table with you who looks at these deals all the time. You are an amateur. I am still an amateur fundraiser against a professional investor. I can't, you, you can't win. You're, you're an amateur. You know, I've done this, you know, half a dozen times. It's a little bit like buying a car. Every time you've ever bought a car in your life, you are up against a professional salesperson who sells 200 cars a month. You bite by 10 in your whole life. You're done. You're at a disadvantage from the very beginning. Okay. So bring somebody along who knows what's going on because you want to do that. So all those terms and things that are there, remember they're your partners. So you want to make sure that they're actively participating. So when you get into board seats, depending on the stages of things, what are they going to bring to the table with those board seats? How do they play into the capital structure? And um, are they going to actually be able to contribute in the way that you want them to as it relates to the board? They may demand all kinds of things, but you don't have to accept them. Right? That's part of the deal. That's part of the partnership, right? So why do they want so many board seats? Is that because they're concerned that at some point they may need to take control of the company? Well, why are they so worried about that? You want to probe on those things. What, what, are, they, what are they worried about? Well, you know, we're not sure that you're going to be the right leader you know, three years down the road. Well, good to find that out now, right? Because maybe you need to get comfortable with that and say, you know what, you're probably right. I'm not the right person to be the CEO of this thing. Well, let's not use the board control to do that. Let's use some other mechanism to do it. So you want to understand the why, W-H-Y, 
behind what those terms are driving. And some of them can be negotiated away. Some of them you'll find out are market, right? And that's why having a good lawyer there says, no, all these firms are making it up. Since the financial crisis, they've all included these things. Or since the pandemic, they've already, or this particular firm always does it because they got, they got crushed because the company took on too much debt and then the debt holders took over the company. They never want to be in that spot again, right? Those are the kinds of things that a good partner will know. And it's worth spending the money on a good lawyer, especially ones that know start the startup game. Do not use your best friend's you know, sister's cousin who happens to be a lawyer and get an expert, right? It's just really worth having somebody at the table that that's what they do every day um, to help you navigate those nuances there. And, and again, reading a book like Brad's is a really good way to make sure you're asking the right questions um, so that you don't get those things. And for those of you who are very early stage, you know, a, um, a convertible note is a very common thing. It's a, it's a, there's lots of levers you can pull there, but if you're raising your first round or even, even your first and second round, having a convertible note can be a really good tool. And it's a, an investment vehicle that has a lot of features to it that are easy to understand as a founder. So don't think of it as like, well, that seems weird. They're, they're normal. You can read about them and understand them again, have a lawyer at the table with you. So you understand the implications of the choices that you're making. You still may make the choices. There are always consequences, and you'll deal with the consequences. That's what we do as entrepreneurs. In your in your journey, um, raising money on different occasions, did you ever do any reverse due diligence of your own on any of the investors? 100%. And what, Always what talk to other CEOs. Ask for two or three CEOs. Ideally, you want one that they invested in, let's say, in the last six months, and you want one that they've had in their portfolio for two, three years, right? And Talk, you want to talk to the founder, whoever the founders are, because you want to understand, well, what's it like to work with them when they show up to board meetings? Are they prepared? You know, do they, do they expect certain things from you? And I will say, once you bring on capital, make sure you understand what their communications expectations are upfront, even before you take their money, you know, and I'm a big believer in over-communicating. So like, we send out packages every month. We have a call every month. We don't require anybody to be there, but we send them out and, and, it, and it's all a look back. So it's all what happened last month. It's not the taste of what's looked for, but it's not a strategy call. It is a pure investor monthly financial call. Let's talk about it. Get that discipline in now, right? Early in the process. What it allows for you to do is when you have a board meeting, let's say you meet quarterly, you can talk strategy and future and you have covered the past. Now, they, somebody may bring that up and say, well, the past informs the future, which is true in some cases, but at least you're not screwing around in a board meeting where you're supposed to be thinking about where, where you're headed with like reviewing our monthly financials. And if you do the monthly, everybody's current. So you're not bringing people up to speed. So if in the middle of the month, somebody calls it, you got some weird thing you got to deal with. And they're like, well, remind me again, how much cash you have on the balance sheet? And why are you spending it that way? It's like, no, 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 you knew that already, right? So setting those systems up at the beginning is really important. Don't let that slide. Make sure they you understand their expectations and you're managing the relationship down the line because that's what it is. It's their capital partners. They deserve information. They deserve stuff. And the more current you keep them, the easier it's going to be for you. And a few a few different people mentioned to me about the concept of smart money that it's not just like, you know, you're not just getting capital, but you want to get something on top of that, uh, whether that's uh, uh, access to a network or a client base or I don't know, 
some some people say that they want hands-on investors. So wanted to ask if you've you've treaded in that kind of space before. <laughs> like how involved have you had your investors participate in your journey? So I think a lot of investors will will make claims about, hey, our network will support you and all that. Some do it really well, some don't. That's the kind of thing you can get through your own diligence with other founders. Um, but there is a bit of be careful what you wish for here. You know, you as the CEO, and I'm going to focus specifically on the CEO, founder and CEO or co-founder and CEO, you're running the company. You are leading the company. The investors and your board members, they expect you to lead the company. And their job is to ask you challenging questions to make sure that they both understand the strategy, not just the mission that they bought into, but your current strategy and why you have confidence that that strategy is going to be effective. And their questions and their feedback may have you adjust and say, you know what, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Let me adjust my strategy to incorporate that new idea. Right? But you're in charge. It is your job to deliver the business to the outcome that you have put out there. And you might change your goals and objectives and all this stuff. They need to be along for that journey. But if you ever find yourself in a spot where they're hands-on and they're like setting the strategy for you, you've already lost the whole company. Give up now. Right? You're done. You've mismanaged the whole thing. Just shut it down. You'll be safer. Um, you can rescue it. It's really hard though, because now there's this expectation that you don't know what you're doing. You're not a good leader. And they're leading. Their job is not to lead. Their job is to guide you, provide you feedback, protect their investment. So if they think you're doing something existentially boneheaded, they're going to basically say, well, time out. That doesn't sound like a good idea. You want them to do that because if you're at odds, man, better find that out quickly, right? Because you, you don't want to be in that spot. You need to bring them along or you need to say, oh boy, I got the wrong investors here. What am I going to do about that? Right? So it's very, it's very, very important for you as a founder to continue to lead. And so, yes, certain types of investors will be smart, but smart, in my experience, has almost always been reputational, not actual, right? It's that the reputation that that firm has about investing in things that have an outcome that is positive that plays to your advantage when you're raising the next round of capital, for example, or you're, or you need to that firm is going to be your lead and they'll help attract others. But the partner that ends up on your board, oftentimes they're not they're the partner that maybe blessed the deal, but they're going to have a junior partner actually sit in on your board meetings and whether that person can bring real value or not. So I wouldn't make a choice between one firm or another or be too restrictive in what you do. It's more important that like you get along really well with that partner and that that you believe that they're going to be helpful in, in that phone call at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday when you're like, oh my gosh, my biggest client just walked away, right? You want them to be able to be a part of the dialogue, which is less about being smart and more about having a good relationship with them and having a lot of trust where they can help be just a good listener at that point or help guide you in some way. And so those are the things that are more important than smart, so to speak. In my when, view. No, it's great, um, Scott. Um, when it comes to uh, making the decision to raise money, and you kind of talked about, you know, how much you, how much you lose every time in terms of dilution, 20 percent per round. Um, at the end, you might not end up with a lot, right? Uh, I actually have a close friend who's a who runs a large scale up, and uh, I found out that after all the rounds, he only owns a couple of points as a CEO. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is really unfortunate because then it's like at the end of the day, like, you know, what what am I doing this for? Or what am I holding on to at the end? And why should I stay? Um, so what I want to ask you is, as a founder, CEO in my journey, and this is say more for like maybe somebody earlier stage, what advice would you give them in order for them to maintain uh, as much control in the company throughout the process? Like either is it, you know, get, don't use initial, don't use capital initially to go and figure out your business, go and try to bootstrap it yourself. And then once you validated it, then you could negotiate better terms at a certain point. Or, you know, how do I prevent crazy dilution along the way? Like any, any thoughts or suggestions on that? Well, the earliest capital you bring in isn't nearly as painful because it's by definition early. So getting too hung up on somebody coming in and owning 18% or 22% at that stage doesn't really matter that much to you, right? It's really in the middle game where things get dicey, where investors start to look for preferences or they want what's called a pick, which I can never remember the, the why that's an acronym, it's P-I-K, it's basically like a preferred interest. So what they do, and, care, and, and it's carried forward. So they'll, they'll say, great, we'll give you $5 million and, and we're gonna get a 9% coupon on top of it that we're gonna get an additional equity every year, right? So now their $5 million is adding another $450,000 to the game or $45,000, yeah, $45,000. So, no, four hundred fifty. Yeah, $450,000. So now all of a sudden they're increasing their ownership stake just in time. Mm-hmm. Or if they have a multiplier, it's like, yeah, no problem. We'll give you $5 million, but we get the first $10 million in profit on an exit. Right? Those kinds of things that, that increase the dilution or you have hurdles you have to cross in order to, oftentimes they'll say, hey, it's a 2X preference unless you get to a certain either valuation or revenue number. There's lots of ways to structure it. So it's the middle game that can really screw you up. And the other thing is don't focus necessarily on equity. Depending on the type of business you have, you may be able to finance things through other forms of cash like debt, right? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs forget about debt. Well, if you have a recurring revenue business and what you need to be able to do is, and you know, even if you're not profitable, but you can serve as debt. Debt is a really great tool for being able to do certain types of things, a capital project of some kind that you need, um, a, you know, a growth spurt that you have confidence in. Now, some venture investors get nervous about debt because debt eats first, right? And in the case of a liquidity thing, the debt gets paid off before the equity holder. So you've just got to think about in that middle game, which is typically like Series A, Series B, Series C, that window, that's where you want a really great partner at the table that at that stage, you know, again, back to the hiring rate lawyer, having a good CFO or having a, a good financial advisor that works with that lawyer that understands startup games. How do I finance this in a way that's efficient? On the other hand, you know, to be clear, if you own 5% of a billion dollar company at the end of the day, that might be a really good trade for five years of your life. Right? You'd say, huh, you know what? I made $50 million. Not a lot of people can get paid you know, $50 million or 10 years of their lives. Right? That's a lot of scratch. So sometimes the trade is worth it if you're playing, if you're playing that game where you're 
sort of playing that unicorn exit game. Again, not for the faint of heart, doesn't work out all the time. So you have to be sort of thoughtful about that middle game because that really does set you up for the for the liquidity events that might be down the line. But I, I want to put a big emphasis on something. Your job as a CEO is to build a really great company that satisfies the needs of your, of your clients, your customers, whoever that is, where they're trading money for value and that you have a team that has a culture that is capable of dealing with the un- inevitable shit show that comes across your life as a startup that can handle all those things. Because if you don't do those things, there will never be an exit. But if you do those things, you'll have all kinds of options down the line and you can play out those options when you go. But don't, you want to start with the end in mind at the theory, let's go solve some really big problem. Not like, oh, I'm going to build a billion dollar company. Those might be the orders of magnitude, but that stuff twists and turns along the way. Couple more questions for you, Scott. I mean, great stuff here. Um, this might be a silly question, but I want to kind of maybe see if you could dumb it down for me um, so that you know people listening can understand what the process is. So like, once you go on that train ride of uh, getting funding, as you mentioned, what should be the expectation for you as a founder when you go and you do a seed round versus series A versus series B versus series C in the sense of like, what am I from your experience, what am I hoping to get out of each round? Is it like, you know, uh, seed, okay, I'm getting to product market fit. Series C, series A, it's like, okay, I found it, now I need to scale. Series B, it's like, okay, I just need to keep scaling. Like, what are those indicators? Is it just like, I just need more capital just to keep the business running? Or are there other kind of like goals you should associate for each round? There is no rule of thumb here. Uh, uh, some people will tell you that I have not found one. It really comes back to what I mentioned earlier about what do you need to prove about the business? And that's the amount of capital you need in order to prove that. So maybe in the middle stages at Series B or Series C, it's, hey, we believe we can prove that we can triple the size of the business uh, in a capital efficient way. Okay. Right. What does that mean? Well, we think we can get our you know, customer acquisition cost to X or to Y or from A to B. Your job is to prove these things that gets the business where you want it to go, whether that's a number of customers that you're impacting, whether that is um, your ability to raise more capital in the later stages, if that's what you're trying to do. Um, maybe it's to get you in a position where you can, again, expand the the services that you're delivering to your clients. There's no hard and fast rule at the stages. You know, you can find charts that'll show you this stuff, but every business is different. The twists and turns, the stuff that didn't go the way you thought it was going to go, the things that happened that you can't predict, the world changes in some fundamental way. Like whatever plan you had in February of 2020 isn't the plan you had in May of 2020. So it was nice that you had some fancy deck about raising your capital and all that other shit, but that I will throw out the window. And that those things happen in every startup. This happened to be one that happened globally, but it's all those things. So it's always going back to those core principles of what are what do you need to prove about the business that lets you get to the next stage of the business? Oftentimes that next stage involves capital, but there's lots of little stages along the way that say, hey, here's an example. Where's my retention at? Well, you need time for a lot of businesses. Maybe I won't know what my retention is for 
couple of years. So how do I set things up so I can measure my cohorts and look at that retention over time so I can prove out that I've got it? And a lot of companies will find themselves in a not in a great place, let's say in a SaaS business, and they're not in a great place by year three or four on their retention because they finally can see it and say, well, shit, our early adopter cohorts, they were really going well, but our, our later adopter cohorts, oh my God, it's a shit show. Like what happened, right? Well, it could take you six months to find out what happened. And then it might take you another six months to fix your product or your marketing or whatever it is to get there. Well, I can't tell you what that is right now on day zero of your company, but I can tell you that if you find yourself in that spot, your story and what you're doing and what your strategy is, all those things are going to be very different about what you need to do to get that next round of capital. And I know I'm not trying to dodge your question. I just don't think there's an answer to it. I think it's about you looking as a business owner and as a founder and saying, okay, what, where are we as a company? What are our objectives in the near term, sort of measured in single digit quarters, right? And what do we need to be able to do? And where are we? Because maybe we've got to turn the ship and say, we got to solve this problem before we're going to raise any more money. And that might mean dialing back your marketing and dialing back your growth. I sit on a board where there's always a tension between these factors. You know, how, how fast do we want to grow? How much capital do we need to invest? How much more capital do we want to bring into the company to maintain that growth rate? Well, guess what? If your customer acquisition cost is out of whack, let's say it's costing you twice as much as you think it should, why would you pour more money into this thing? That's just crazy. Or your retention is below, let's say, 80%, right? You're just, you're just churning now, right? So it depends on the type of business, where you're at, what's happening, what do you know, what do you not know? Boy, I wish it was easier, but it's not. It's but that's a, why we sign up for this game because we get to play it differently each time. Uh, it's 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 a it's a definite unknown. It's different for every business, which you're totally right. Um, when when you actually do get the money, I don't know any any strategies or recommendations you would uh, recommend to anybody in terms of how to structure those capital plans. Like what I'm trying to maybe say here is. Uh, I know investors want to see where you're going to put the money, like how are you going to allocate a product, marketing, sales, like whatever it is, you know, inherently these things change. So once you get it, like, you know, industries change, the business might pivot, but how important is it, would you say, in terms of having really clear plans of action around how you spend the money that you get? Plans are worthless. So I'm a big fan of OKRs that you're, that you're wrapping, you know, basically leading the company around on, and we use quarterly. I feel like that's a, in the middle stages, that's enough. In the early stages, it might be monthly. You have to set them. Mm -hmm. So it's about setting an objective and a key result you're driving towards. It is not about having a plan, right? You have to have, you have to plan to figure out how you're going to reach those key results that you're driving towards, but your forecast for, your business is going to be updated constantly based on new information. And in the earlier stages, that new information is going to be coming at a very fast clip, hour to hour in some cases. As you stretch your planning, your planning horizon, your view, you can start to see that those adjustments are less frequent, but you're still going to be making them. Maybe they move to monthly or then quarterly. Until you're really established, you have no hope of planning more than maybe 12 months out. So, you, by setting those objectives and, and assessing your strategy on how you're going to reach those objectives and those key results, you kind of have to be assessing them all the time. And the key thing for you as a founder, for all your stakeholders is 
you're constantly processing new information and the new information that you get at the highest level has, it, it's a binary outcome. Does it, does it validate my current strategy or does it mean my strategy, does it give me information that invalidates and I got to change it? And there's, there's, I guess there's a third option, which is neutral. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change things one way or the other, right? So if it, if it validates your strategy, then you're going in the right direction. And what you're communicating to everybody is, hey, it's working, right? If it invalidates some, either all or part of your strategy, go time out. We had strategy A, we learned new information X, and now we have to change our strategy to B. And that pattern, you have to be unbelievably clear about communicating that to your key stakeholders, mostly your team and your investors, right? We had strategy A, X thing happened, and then we got to go towards B, right? And that X part, maybe in the early going, that might happen every day, right? In the later stages, it might be once a quarter or once every six months, but you've got to play that pattern because it's about driving towards those outcomes. Remember in the early, in this conversation, I said, you've got to prove or disprove certain things. So you're going to say, here's our objective is to do X you know, or A, you know, is my thing. My strategy is A, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to keep twisting my strategy towards that objective. Unless something catastrophic changes, maybe I have to change the objective. Usually not, but sometimes, but I definitely might have to adjust my strategy along the way. And that, and it's hard to remember, especially in the early going, that it's like, hey, you told me last month your strategy was A, and now I see your strategy is now D, because you cycled through B and C along the way, but you didn't tell anybody. Right? So if you ever remember a math class where your teacher asked you to show your work, this was my problem. It's like, ah, they had the factors are X minus three and, you know, X plus four. And she said, well, how did you get to that answer? Well, I just know it. That's not helpful. Okay. Show your work, show how you got there. It'll be so helpful to you. And I'm, I do my best at it. I still make mistakes all the time, but that's how you're going to get there. Amazing, Scott. Um, to, to end, to end off. And my last question here, um, I wanted to chat about leadership and building great companies and, um, I want to ask you, how would you describe your leadership style? And before, when we had a chance to connect, you mentioned something about the three tenets. Yeah. So I, I think that, that first and foremost, my job as a leader is to, on the one hand, inspire people to want to go attack interesting problems and go accomplish that. And mostly it's about coaching and, and, and being in support of people who actually do all the work. And so if you want your team to be effective, I have found kind of three key things that I think they work for me. And I think if you observe other leaders, you'll find that these are often true. So number one, it's transfer, basic transparency. They have to have, your team has to have the information they need to be effective. They need to know the context they're operating in. And the more information that they have, uh, the better, right? Let them have everything be as visible as you can make it. Write things down, use documentation tools, you use public channels in your communications, whether it's Slack or Teams or whatever tools you're using. So number one, transparency, visibility, have them, and if you can, reinforce that they actually understand it. That's number one. Number two is give them ownership, which I view as the combination of responsibility and authority. A lot of founders trip this up. Frankly, a lot of all kinds of leaders trip this up. They give you responsibility, go do this thing, but they don't give you the authority to 
buy a thing, hire somebody, create a budget, what, you know, whatever it is to have the authority to go do it. If you ever find yourself in a spot where you have responsibility without the authority, it is unbelievably frustrating for everybody involved. 90% of the workforce finds themselves in that spot on a regular basis. It's terrible. So if you want to actually unleash your team, the way to do it is they have to have all the information and then they need to be able to make decisions, which means they have to have responsibility, know what they're supposed to do and be able to have authority to go do it, whatever that is. And they don't have to have full authority over everything. They just have enough authority, right? And so, you know, make sure you give them that. And if you're really good, you'll give them a little bit more so they can show you what their stretch is so they can develop from, 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 uh, from a professional standpoint. So that's number two. So one, transparency. Two, ownership. Three, create resiliency in your teams by demonstrating that we're not about pointing fingers. Mistakes are going to happen. The world's going to do weird shit to us. The best thing that we can do is to identify what the problem is, whatever it is, the issue, thing that's come up, rally as a team to figure out how to overcome whatever it is, and then learn from it. Do a retro after the fact to say, hey, that was whack. We fixed it. We solved it, whatever. Okay, what did we learn from that? And the more that you can create a learning environment there, that creates a, a, a higher trust environment because everybody can move faster. And so if they have the information that they need, they feel like they have real ownership and they know they're not going to get fired when they make a mistake, but instead everybody in the company is going to rally around them to go fix whatever it is. And then we're going to learn from it so we can avoid making that mistake again. Now you've unlocked the capability of your team. And that's a, that's a big deal. You can overcome all kinds of crazy shit if you've gotten to that place hard it's not perfect. It's not a uniform across everything. A lot of people have never had real authority. So you got to teach them that, no, I really mean that you could just go buy that thing. No, I don't care. Just expense it. It doesn't matter. Move on. Like, why are we spending time on this? Those kinds of headspaces. No, you can actually go change that code, but I don't, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Like, do you believe it's the right thing to do? Good. Is your team, is your team, trust your team that if you screw it up, they're going to help you fix it. Yeah. Okay, good. Let's go. Hard to get people in that headspace, but when you do, man, whew, things click along. No, it's uh, I love those three tenants. Um, I'm gonna review all of ours and make sure we're covering all these points. I, I think we are for the most part, but uh, thanks for sharing that. I think it's it's a great leadership style that you have, and just in general, I think with all the things you've said so far, are very resonating to me as a CEO and co-founder of a company, and I think for all of our listeners. So, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and supporting the show, following us on LinkedIn. We don't take it for granted and appreciate it. So this was another Off the Record episode with an awesome founder. Uh, we'll be back here again soon. We are proud.